Good evening and welcome to our evening service. Glad that you folks are here and the rain didn't stop you. It did come down for a while there, didn't it? It's good again to gather together to worship the Lord. And again, welcome to those uh, who are able to join us on Zoom. Again, we give thanks that Joshua is able to be here with us. We'll ask Joshua now to come read this evening's scripture and lead us in prayer if you were Joshua. Uh, glad to be here once again and to bring greetings from Perry Sound and was glad that I wasn't washed off the road on the way here. It might have not been very heavy rain here, but about just outside of Brit for about 15 minutes, it poured so heavy that we were maybe going 20 down the road and a lot of people were pulling over. Just so heavy rain, but I'm glad to safely be able to be here with you this evening. If you do have your Bibles, please open them to Revelation chapter 7. That's Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7, we'll be reading verses 9 to 17. Revelation 7, 9 to 17. John is seeing what um, the seals have been broken by the Lamb in heaven. And now he continues to write in verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels stood round the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures, and fell on their faces before the throne, and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I, John, said to him, Sir, I do not know, or Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. Let's go to prayer together. Father, O Lord, we cry, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Oh, how we long to see you face to face. Even as we have just read, to cry out in a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the one that was slain. O Lord, what wonder it is that even we, we here may come before you. We who were once enemies and rebels, we who once deserved eternal hell, judgment, death. But, O oh Lord, wonder upon wonders in the fullness of time you sent forth your Son, our Savior, Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus. For by his life and death and resurrection, we have been forgiven and reconciled to you. O oh Lord, that veil in the temple has been torn and we may boldly enter in with confidence, not in ourselves, but in Christ and in his righteousness. 
in his perfect life, in his complete redemption. O Lord, what a wonder it is that we may call you Father. We may cast ourselves upon you, knowing that you care for us, knowing that we have a good shepherd, one who walks with us in the good and in the bad, yes, even through the valley of the shadow of death. Father, we come here with many things upon our hearts and minds, struggles, trials, joys. O Lord, help us to cast them before you. Lord, to be thankful for all the manifold blessings that you have laid out before us. But Lord, those trials and troubles that burden our heart, O Lord, that oftentimes keep us away from you, keep us from prayer, keep us from your word, sometimes even keep us from fellowship one with another, O Lord, we confess them, asking that you would forgive and wipe clean, knowing that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, we pray for those that are not with us this evening. Some are traveling. Give them journey mercies. Some are sick. We pray that you would comfort them by your Holy Spirit. Take your word and bring it powerfully to their minds, that they may meditate upon these things and be refreshed and strengthened by them. Father, we pray for the congregation here and in Arnstein and other places that are looking for a pastor. O Lord, that you would raise up men to fill these pulpits, O Lord, men after your own heart, shepherds, Lord, that deeply desire that you would be glorified, that would lift you up, O Lord. Lord, we know that you are preparing hearts, preparing people even now. So, Lord, we wait upon you. Lord, oftentimes we feel like the great king of Israel. Lord, we know not what to do, but our eyes upon you. But Lord, what wonder that you gave a victory beyond whatever they could even begin to imagine. O Lord, hold us fast. We are undone if we stand in our own power. But in you, O Lord, we are firm. For you are a foundation that cannot be destroyed. You are the high tower in the midst of the storms that assail us. And Lord, we do pray for our brothers and sisters on the East Coast as they are being assailed by another kind of storm at this time as that hurricane has passed through and done great damage. I know several of our, our, talking to several of our brothers and fellow pastors and saying that just churches have been damaged and just there's no power and all sorts of stuff is going on there. So I pray that you would comfort those in the midst of struggle and turmoil, that you would unite those churches together and helping each other and serving their communities. And um, Lord, shining forth your word, O Lord, that they may point people to Christ. Father, as we have met here together, we pray that everything that is said and done would be for your glory and your honor. O Lord, we ask that you would illuminate our minds and hearts by your Holy Spirit. Lord, as we come to your word, that you would, Lord, burden us, transform us, lead us and guide us, mold us more and more into the image of your Son, O Lord. We want to be like Jesus. O do a perfect work within us. Lord, we thank you for these things. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. If you do have your Bibles, please open them to 1 Peter chapter 3. That's 1 Peter chapter 3. We're continuing our Mirandering exposition of um, 1 Peter. We're in chapter 3 this evening. 1 Peter chapter 3. Verses 17 and 18. 
Before we go into the Word, let's once again unite our hearts together in prayer. Father, indeed as we have just sung, as we have meditated upon in the reading from Revelation 7, O Lord, to see your face, O what wonder, O that day that we long for. And Father, as we meditate this evening upon what it cost that we might have the privilege to look upon you, to gaze upon you in your holiness, your righteousness, your love, and not be consumed, O Lord, all because of the life and death, resurrection, the shed blood of Jesus in our place condemned, he stood. O Lord, open our eyes, our ears, our minds, our hearts this evening. O Lord, may we taste and see that you are good. May we rejoice in such bountiful and free salvation. O Lord, teach us by your Spirit this evening, we ask and pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 17. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made live by the Spirit. As Peter writes this short epistle to those in modern-day Turkey, ancient Asia Minor, he's writing to a group of individuals that are in the midst of a storm. Up until very recently, Christianity was protected within the ancient Roman Empire. When Christianity first burst onto the scene after the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came down on tongues of fire upon the apostles, and they began preaching of what Christ had done, the authorities, of course, took notice of this, these group of people that are claiming that the, this man, Jesus, was their Savior, their Messiah, the one they were waiting for. We crucified him, but yet they say that he rose from the dead. And talking among themselves and saying, we can't, we can't find the body. We don't have the body to show it and prove that they're wrong. But as Christianity spread out into the Roman Empire, most of the politicians, the emperors, those that were in charge of city centers, looked at Christianity as mainly an offshoot of Judaism. And because of what had happened long ago in the past, Judaism was a protected religion within the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was a world full of all sorts of different deities, all sorts of different gods, all sorts of different sins. But yet the Jews held fast that there is only one God and they refused to bend the knee to any other idols, any idols at all. And therefore, when the Christians came on the scene and said the same thing, no, we will not bow down and worship in the temples. We will not burn the pinch of incense to Caesar. We will not do these things. They were protected by the same laws that protected the Jews. But over time, there began to be among the synagogues a sad fact that the Jewish people, by and large, did not embrace the gospel. Though Christ came first to the Jews... Yet they received him not. And it didn't take long until the synagogues began kicking out the Christians and saying, we want nothing to do with you. And especially for those that were Jewish Christians, 
Their whole life was wrapped up in the life of the synagogue. They had family and friends and businesses all connected with that place. But now they were being booted out. They were losing friends and family. Some were even losing their jobs over the confession that Jesus is Lord. And those Greeks that had come in and believed in Christ now were facing severe persecution no longer were they protected by those laws that freed them from offering incense in the temples, claiming Caesar is Lord. And so now there is a difficult trial ahead of them. Will they stand fast? Will they remain confessing Jesus as Lord? Or will they turn back? Will they instead offer the incense to Caesar? Will they instead go into the temples like they did before? And Peter writes this epistle to encourage them to stand fast, to not bend the knee, but yet to confess Christ boldly and powerfully where they are, knowing that it might bring persecution. Peter himself knows all about this. We remember in the gospel on the night that Jesus was betrayed, after Peter and the rest of the disciples ran away, Peter followed Jesus into the court of the high priest. And there he denied Jesus three times. Instead of being with Christ, Christ was about to be crucified. Peter was scared. And so when a little servant girl came up to him and said, you must be a follower of Jesus. Peter's response, no, never. You you speak like a Galilean, you must be a follower. No, I am not. And remember Peter's cursing and saying, no, I am not one of Jesus' disciples. And the rooster crows. And he remembers Jesus' words that before the rooster crowed, he would deny him three times. And Peter runs away and weeps bitterly. But there's that beautiful picture in the Gospel of John, that early morning shortly after the resurrection, where Peter is out fishing, and they see the Lord on the beach preparing breakfast for them. And Peter jumps in the water and swims out to Jesus, and Jesus gives him, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And Peter is restored. We see that beautiful picture. Christ restores Peter. He forgives him even for forsaking him, even for denying him. Peter knows what it's like to be in the hot seat. He knows what it is to choose rather to, to escape suffering and deny Christ. But he does not want those he writes to to go through such anguish as he himself went through during those days between Christ's arrest and his resurrection. Can you imagine what Peter's going through during that that roughly three and a half day period? The anguish of seeing and hearing Christ on that cross and knowing that he did not stand but ran away, knowing that he betrayed Christ. Oh, Peter wants better things for them and for us. And so he encourages them and he kind of summarizes the first three chapters in the line we have here in verse 17. For it is better, Peter writes, if it be or if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing wrong. Peter says sometimes we will suffer as we stand for the gospel. Sometimes we will suffer for doing what is right. Sometimes we will suffer for standing against sin. Sometimes for not burning the the incense to Caesar as it were, but standing fast on the gospel. 
And we will suffer for it. And we are coming into a time, even in our own country, where more and more we are seeing persecution for the sake of the gospel. Well, standing firm on the word of God will get us not just ridiculed like it might have in the past, but actually might lose us our jobs, might actually have us beaten up, might actually have us arrested. And Peter says, it is sometimes the will of God to suffer for doing good. But it is far better to suffer for doing good than to suffer for doing evil. And notice here, sometimes it is the will of God. The will of God. Sometimes that might boggle our minds. Even though we probably wouldn't say that we're in the, the health and wealth gospel. That if we do the right thing, God will bless us abundantly with health and wealth beyond measure. But it's easy to assume some of that. To think that as Christians, God will not let us suffer. He will not let trials and troubles and tribulations come into our lives because we are followers of Jesus. But yet you won't find that in Scripture. You have to twist Scripture to get those things. Look at the Apostle Paul. Do you read through Corinthians? Paul goes into a long list of the troubles he's been. He's been stoned. He's been shipwrecked. He's been beaten. He's almost been executed multiple times. All for what? The sake of the gospel. He was persecuted for doing right. And he would be the first one to say, that is the will of God for me. That is God's will. I didn't do anything wrong. I was doing exactly what God told me to do, to go and be an apostle to the Gentiles. You think of Silas, who was with him. Hanging up in prison, singing songs in the middle of the night, even though their bodies are beaten and bruised. Barnabas and other companions. And Peter himself. Though scripture doesn't record what happens to Peter after we last see him in the book of Acts. We know that he continues to follow his commission to be the apostle to the Jews. And that brings him into all sorts of conflict and trial and trouble. But yet, it is God's will for the furtherance of the gospel. That God oftentimes takes our struggles and our trials and uses them for his glory. In his perfect sovereign will. That's sometimes hard for us to grasp. How can God bring good out of this suffering? How can God bring anything out of all the pain and the darkness? How can God do this but yet he does and he promised that he will even if we don't always live to see it and so peter draws our minds away from ourselves in verse 17 to the greatest picture of evil being thrown on someone that one could possibly ever contemplate and that is christ he brings our minds to jesus The perfect, spotless, sinless Lamb of God. Who what? Bore our sins on the cross on Calvary. We think of what Christ endured during His earthly life. Not just at the crucifixion, but all throughout His life. Of course, ultimately at the crucifixion. The trials and the troubles, the sorrows, the pains, the beatings. Even before the cross... Jesus goes and he opens up the prophet 
in his own hometown, with all his extended family and friends and those that know him. And he preaches. And he says, today this has been accomplished in your hearing. And what do they try to do? They try to kill him. They, the, the synagogue in Nazareth is built over top of a mountain. And they throw him out of the synagogue and try to push him off the hill. But Jesus miraculously passes through them and escapes. But Jesus begins his ministry with his own town trying to kill him. Can you imagine that? The very people he grew up with, those that know him, family, people he might even call friends, seek his life and seek to kill him. And throughout the rest of his ministry, we see even his own brothers and sisters think he's mad. And yet that all leads up to the cross. For Christ also suffered. Christ also suffered. Even the very fact of that, when you think about it. Here is Emmanuel, God with us. Perfect man and perfect God suffering for us. He suffered. That Christ would take upon himself perfect humanity, the fullness thereof, for that he might suffer so that we might be saved. Christ also suffered once for sin. And here Peter really brings out probably one of the most beautiful encapsulations of the gospel. The only one I can think of better um, is 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. There in a small little sentence, basically, you have the completeness of Christ's work. And here also we see Christ's work. For Christ also suffered once for sins. Christ reminds us that the perfect lamb was crucified. Sorry, Peter reminds us that the perfect lamb was crucified. Remember the words of John, the lamb of God that comes to take away the sin of the world. Christ came and he suffered. He suffered so that we might be free. That ultimately, we might be reconciled to God. That ultimately, we might enjoy eternal life. In Christ's suffering, in that moment on Calvary, we were freed from the eternal suffering and judgment of our sin in hell. Ever thought about that? He, it's, it was one writer once said it, he endured hell so that we don't have to. He suffered so that we might not have to face the greatest suffering because Christ in our place bore it on the tree. Christ also suffered, notice, once for sins. Christ suffered but once, once for all. The act of Christ on Calvary was eternally effective. Once for all. It doesn't need to be done again and again and again. You, Christ doesn't need to be crucified every time we sin. It was a once for all event. As the writer of Hebrews says, there, there's no need for a second sacrifice. 
In the Old Testament, the great high priests, when they wanted to go into the most holy place, what did they have to do on the Day of Atonement? They had to sacrifice a sheep. Take that blood and pour it out first on themselves and on the objects, and then finally go into the holy place and do that blood. But what did they have to do the next year? All over again. Next year, all over again. Next year, all over again. Every single day, if you were to go into ancient Jerusalem, there would be hundreds of hundreds of sacrifices again and again and again because they never were enough. Even if they could take away sin and they never could, we keep on sinning. We keep on sinning and we need a new sacrifice and a new sacrifice. But yet in Christ, once for all, once for sin, atonement, perfect atonement, because the perfect spotless lamb, because he was Emmanuel, God with us. The infinite worth of his sacrifice, the wonder of his blood that was shed, Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. Christ's death was substitutionary. As we read about in Isaiah 53, verse 6, he, took, he bore our sins on Calvary. He was the just, we were the unjust. We are the ones who don't deserve salvation. There's no good in us that would somehow earn God's favor. Salvation is all freely of grace. It's all God's perfect work. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. None of us can somehow claim that God, we deserve to be saved. Can you imagine the audacity to say, God must save me because I'm such a wonderful person. Look at all the wonderful things that I've done. In fact, that very attitude is repugnant to God. It's not anything we have done, but God's great love towards us that rescues us while we were lost in sin, while we were doomed and under God's judgment. The just for the unjust. Oh, how wonderful to know of the grace of God reaching the most defiled. Yes, even someone like me. There's such beauty in that and the power of the gospel that we can go forth and say to anyone, if you think God cannot forgive your sins, you're fooling yourselves. Indeed, God delights to forgive sinners, even someone, as Paul would say, the chief of sinners. Even someone like Paul, who was so deluded in his own self-righteousness until he came face to face with Christ on the road to Damascus. The just for the unjust. That he might bring us to God. The death of Christ was eternally effective. It was substitutionary and it reconciled us to God. While we were once lost enemies and rebels, now by the grace and mercy of God we have been brought in. We have been made sons of the Most High God. And the language of sonship that Scripture speaks of is the idea of we have been brought into the inheritance. We have been brought into not only God's family, but the blessings that that brings as well. In the ancient culture that Peter writes, daughters did not share usually in the inheritance of the family. They were expected to be married out and join another family. But the sons would remain in. 
And so that's why the sonship language is used so powerfully to say that we are brought in. We are not kicked out. We are not sent out to join another family. No, we are brought into God's family to remain. And those blessings are ours forever. We have been reconciled. I'm starting a series on the tabernacle at um, Fellowship Baptist in Perry Sound. And this morning we were talking about the glory of God and how it was that in the Old Testament you couldn't approach God's glory. God in His holiness and righteousness is so other, so set apart that there needed to be all these different barriers and all these different things that, that kept the Israelites from coming in and being destroyed by the holiness of God. Think of Isaiah on the day that King Uzziah, the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the glory of him filled the temple. And what does Isaiah it falls on his face? Woe is me, I am undone, I am destroyed, for I have gazed upon the glory of God. In fact, all the scripture says he gazed upon the, the raiment of God, the sort of the, the back of his cloak is the picture Isaiah gives. But so glorious is the Lord that Isaiah falls down to be undone. Until that angel comes with that coal with blood from the altar and puts it on his lips and cleanses him so that he is able to come in. Notice the cleansing by blood. But there was all these different levels of the tabernacle you had to go through before you could come into the presence of God. Because God is holy and we are not. Ever since the garden, when Adam and Eve were created, they were in fellowship. They walked with God. But after they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what? There's disfellowship. Yes, there's the promise of reconciliation, the promise of the Messiah, the one that will come that will crush the serpent's head. But yet there is that separation. They are forced out of Eden to wander. The ground is cursed. No longer can they walk with God. And all throughout the Old Testament, the question is, how can a righteous God walk with sinful mankind? How can those two be brought together and reconciled? But in Christ, in the cross, we see the answer to that. Jesus reconciling, putting to death the enmity that existed by bearing our sins on Calvary, by washing them away, and by giving us His perfect righteousness. The great exchange, our sin upon Him, His perfect holy righteousness upon us. Not only are we wiped clean, but we are clothed in all that He did. His perfect holiness. We don't need the holiness of another. We don't need to plead the the holiness of saints gone by or anything of that nature. We have Christ. We have His holiness, His perfection. Why would we need anything more? Even when we go to pray, we pray, and when we say, in Jesus' name, what does that mean? It's not some sort of magic word that makes our prayers heard. It's to remind us that we come before God in Christ's righteousness. In his life, in what he has done for us, we have been reconciled to him. No more alienation. And that branches out not just in our relationship with God, but it also branches out to our relationship with others. The beauty of the early church and what we are called to today is that reconciliation. The fact that it was both Jew and Gentile who used to hate each other. The Jews never got along with the Gentiles. They never even ate with Gentiles. But yet, 
as they gathered together on the Lord's day, bread would be broken, the cup would be passed out, and what would happen? Jew and Gentile would both come and partake together. That picture of reconciliation, that which was, could not happen, was not allowed to happen, was broken in the breaking of bread, in the passing of the cup, in fellowship together. Now, as Paul says, there is no more barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, male or female. We have been reconciled together. We are now brothers and sisters together. Reconciliation with God. Being put to death in the flesh. Peter doesn't want to sugarcoat what he's writing. He wants us to remember that this caused Christ's death. He died so that we might live. Sometimes we can minimize the cross and all that it accomplished. Especially as we walk around with a necklace, with a, with a crucif- um, crucifix on it or um, a cross. We minimize it. We, we, we forget that Christ died so that we might live being put to death in the flesh. But wonder upon wonder, Jesus did not remain dead, but being made alive by the Spirit. On that third day, Christ rose bodily from the tomb. There's also a beautiful picture here, as you read through the New Testament, of of a beautiful picture of the Trinity. Who raised Jesus from the dead? Here's a question. Who raised Jesus from the dead? As, as you read in, in Scripture, Jesus says, as he's talking to the Pharisees, destroy this temple, and in three days, what? I will raise it up. And when um, Stephen speaks to the Jewish Pharisees, what does he say? He says, the Father raised Jesus from the dead. And here we see being made alive by what? The Spirit. We see a picture, and there's multiple other texts as well. It keeps on flipping. Who raised Jesus from the dead? Well, it was an act of God. As Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All three raised Jesus from the dead. The three, three in one, our Lord and Savior. How wonderful. Christ arose. Up from the dead, he rose. With a mighty triumph o'er his foes. He arose the victor from the dark domain. And he lives forever with his saints to reign. He has been made alive. And so Peter draws our minds to Christ and says, because these things are so, because Christ has all authority, all power, all glory, because Christ died in our place, we may suffer with hope. We may suffer because we know the one who suffered far more than we ever will understand. We can suffer because we know that our suffering is just in the here and the now. Isn't it a beautiful thing? The fact that we have a Savior who knows, who cares, as Hebrews says, a great high priest who understands. I was counseling a a dear lady and and she's going through some, some trouble. Her family has basically forsaken her because of her commitment to Christ. And I said, I, I personally don't know what that feels like. I, I grew up in, in a wonderful Christian home, and most of my relatives are, are believers. But I said, but Christ understands. 
And I opened up the passage in, in two passages in the Gospels where Jesus' family disowns him. And I said, here's the perfect, righteous, holy Lamb of God. And yet his family disowns him. And I said, Christ understands. Christ understands. What a beautiful thing to contemplate, to know is true. And even as we go through suffering, we know who holds all things in his hands. Because Christ came and died. And we have been reconciled to God. Because Christ rose again victorious, we have eternal hope. Because Christ died, when we suffer, we know our suffering is not in vain. We cling to Christ and cry, Lord, use it. Lord, may you shine forth. Lord, may you receive all glory, honor, because you are worthy. Oh Lord, thank you that you never let me go. Thank you that you hold me fast. Oh, help, help me, for I need your hand and your guidance. Let's pray. Father, we do pray these things. Lord, each one of us has struggles and trials, difficulties in our lives. Lord, you understand. You know everything we're going through even better than we do. Oh Lord, as the song says, what a friend we have in Jesus. But Lord, we don't minimize the fact that We cry out to you because of what you have done. You are our Savior. You are the perfect spotless Lamb of God. You bore our sins on Calvary. Father, that you would send your Son in the fullness of time to die for rebels and enemies. Die for those that wanted nothing to do with you. O oh Lord... What beauty is there in the gospel? Come all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The physician comes for those that are sick. Jesus says, I'm dealing with Nicodemus. Lord, Zacchaeus actually. Lord, we pray that as we think upon all that you have done for us, that you would renew our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Lord, what can we say? For you have done beyond what we could even ask or imagine. Lord, I pray if there is any here this evening that do not know Christ as their Savior, that they would indeed see what has been done at Calvary. O oh Lord, that they would see their need of Christ and flee unto him and find forgiveness full and free in the precious blood of the Lamb, reconciliation, newness of life. And O oh Lord, for us that know Christ, oh, may his death be all the more precious, all the more glorious. Lord, lead us and guide us, even as we suffer in your name. May it be done with the right mind of looking unto Jesus. Well, Father, we thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.